0: There's an old story that I've told before that I, um, I don't know if it's true, <laughs> honestly. It's a preacher's story that I heard years and years ago and thought, isn't that a, a really appropriate way of describing the challenge that goes on inside of Christians who are trying to follow God? Uh, Snopes.com will eventually get a hold of it and disprove its truthfulness, I'm sure. But that's Okay. It's, it's, it's really an interesting way of describing, as I said, what goes on inside of, inside of us when we want to follow the call of, call of God and obey Him. So here's the story. Uh, there's a missionary who works with Native Americans, a First Nations people in the United States, and so he, he would go, and he would go to different villages, and he would pre- preach the gospel to those people, and some people would come to faith in Christ, and then he would try to establish a, a church in that place. In one village that he went to, uh, w- there was a chief there, and he preached the gospel, and, and, the, and the chief believed, and the chief ended up becoming the pastor of the little church that was planted there. And the, the missionary, as was his custom, would leave from that location, and he would go to another village after a few weeks of establishing the church, and then he would make another tour around those, uh, those newfound churches after he had gone through his whole gamut of, of, uh, of villages. Uh, sometimes it took between, you know, two and three years to get back to the same village. And so this is what happened. This, this, priest, this uh, chief comes to faith in Christ, becomes the pastor of this little church, that gets established and helped by the missionary, who then goes away for a couple of years and comes back to see how the church is doing. When he gets back, they had this big parade for him, and the chief was out in the front, and he was welcoming him into his village, and they were walking along the way to the meeting house where they were going to have some discussions, and the the missionary with his arm around the chief says, so I just, how's it going? And I don't mean how's it going with the village, I mean how's it going with your faith? And the chief said, you know, it's like there are two dogs fighting inside of me. There's a dark dog and there's a light dog. And the dark dog wants me to do all the things that I used to do, the way that I used to live before I came to faith in Jesus, and the light dog is always calling me and urging me to do the opposite. And they're just at each other, fighting all the time. The missionary said, Oh, that's a remarkable way of describing what goes on inside of Christians. If you don't mind me asking, said the missionary, which one of the two is winning? And the, the chief said, Well, whichever one I feed. Now, again, I don't know. It seems a little too trite for it to be probably true. But, you know, I. Honestly, it's a it's a really helpful image. These two dogs fighting in, inside of us, because that's that's the way it it seems. If you if you're a Christian here, this is probably how you feel. You know there, there's a battle that wages war when you want to obey God in a particular way, or you want to, you know, turn away from a sinful indulgence or temptation. There's this battle inside of your heart. You know, even in our culture, we have images for this. You know, the little angels that sit on the shoulders. There's a little white angel with his little halo, and then there's the pitchfork red-caped dude on the other, and they're whispering in our ears. And so we even use language like we want to appeal to the better angels of our nature and things like that. So we understand that there exists in us a fight. But the, the question that we Christians are plagued with, is why is it so hard to obey God? I mean, we've been saved from the penalty of sin. That's what it means to be in Christ, right? The righteousness of Jesus is given to us so that when we stand before God, he does not see us in ourselves, he sees us in Christ. And he attributes the righteous standing of Jesus to us, even if we're not righteous, which we aren't. So we're saved from the penalty of sin. We will be with God forever because of Christ's finished work. But what about sin's power? How much freedom do we get from sin's power in this life? Are 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 we doomed to failure over and over again? To giving in to the little pitchfork guy, to that dark dog? Or can we have significant victory? Can we walk with God consistently and sinlessly even? And there's debate about that in the, among Christians. You ever seen that bumper sticker uh, on the back of some cars that says, uh, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. I always think that's funny. It's usually on the back of a car that's driving very poorly, right? Don't, ex- <laughs> don't expect anything more from me. I just, but is that the way it is? Is that essentially the only difference between somebody who's a Christian and somebody who's not a Christian is that the Christian is forgiven? Don't expect any kind of difference in lifestyle or in holiness or anything like that. Or compare that with what my friend who mentored me years ago said in a Monday night Bible study. He told a group of 10 high school kids, and I was one of them, he said to to us, listen guys, I haven't sinned in weeks. And I said, until now, (laughs) right? But is that, there are people who believe that. The the normal Christian life should be kind of a sinless one where you don't give in to temptation pretty much at all. There's no known sin in your life for weeks on end. Or is it somewhere in the middle? This passage, Galatians chapter five, that's, that's what it's about. It tries to answer some of these questions. Paul, the guy who wrote it, The apostle, he he tries to answer and engage with this. What should you expect from the Christian life? So look, this is the last sermon in our series on the Holy Spirit. Um, I've really enjoyed this this series. Um, Today, we're going to focus on the Spirit's work in making us holy. How is it that the Holy Spirit works in us so that we say yes to God when we're tempted with with sin, So, four steps in this passage. First, the passage is going to describe how we are in a fight. We Christians are in a fight between the flesh and the spirit. Second, what happens then if we choose to side with the flesh? Third, what happens if we choose to side with the spirit? And then finally, how do we win it? How do you, how do you win the fight? How do you choose the spirit and not the flesh. Okay, so there's a battle. What if you choose the flesh? What if you choose the spirit? How do we win? Here's the first part. We are in a fight between the flesh and the spirit. Verse 16 of Galatians chapter five. So I say, says the apostle Paul, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what's contrary to the flesh. See, they're in conflict with one another, so that you're not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So this sounds, for so many of us, uh, like there are two parts of us. Okay, Paul's describing that there's this fleshly part and then there's this spiritual part and that there's this battle inside of us that's going on between the fleshly bit and the spiritual bit. That's actually not the way he uses this language. I know it sounds that way, but when Paul uses language of flesh and spirit, he's not talking about two parts of you so much as he's talking about two governing authorities over you. So the, the flesh... Was your governor, it was your master. Now the spirit is your master, but you live in Paul's language and other places between the ages. Now, here's what I mean by that language, okay? I'm going to draw my picture because pictures are awesome. So, here's the way that Paul understands basically history. He talks about how there is th- an age that's passing away. So, this is an age that's passing away, and that age was governed by the flesh. It will come to an end. When? Well, when Christ returns. And there's an age to come, which we are currently in, he says. You are in the age to come. And it's going to last forever. And he defines that as the age of the Spirit, where the Spirit has authority. And it started when Jesus came the first time. So Christians now live in what's called the overlap of the ages. So this section in here, we live with two voices calling out to us. One that is of the Spirit to do the things that God calls us to do, and one that is of the flesh that is calling us to do what we were prior to we became Christians, and that is kind of the governing authority of the the world around us, of the culture around us. So the point that he's making in this, though, is that wh- how do you define this overlap of the ages? How do you define it? And the answer is tension. The kind of tension that happens to anybody who, who moves from one governing authority being under one to, to another governing authority. So who do you know like that? And the answer is anybody who's ever moved internationally. So now I'd like to take a few moments to share with you my experiences as being an American in Canada. Um, (laughs) So when I first moved to Canada, because that's what happens, right, is you move from one authority and one cultural background, and you're adopting a new one, and there's this period between what was and what is and is to come that you feel this uh, tension. So uh, the tension is... Described probably in my experience when I when I first arrived on these blessed shores, and I had to go to um, I had to go to ICBc to get my car insurance, and uh, I went in there. And they answered all the I answered all the questions, and the person looked at me and said, "Well, this is what you win this amount," and I looked at it and I said, "Well, that's for a year, right?" And they said, "No, that's a month, That's for the month," and I said, "What? You need to run crunch those numbers again." because there's no way that's the amount, like unless you guys are stealing from people. So we had like a half an hour conversation about about they crunched the numbers, he said I don't need to crunch the numbers again, this is what the computer just told me and the computer belongs to the government and this is what they want you to pay to drive here. And I was like, the next 30 minutes, I was pacing around the office talking about my philosophy of government, right? Like it's outrageous. Wait, do you guys know what the market is? And Come on, everywhere else I've lived, do you see so there's a new governing authority and I'm trying to get used to what it looks like, but there's that old impulse, and I leave between. And so I'm frustrated about it. Uh, when I first arrived here, there's a guy who, uh, um, I was at my house, and I walked out in the front, and this young guy walked up to me. I didn't know him. And he handed me a newspaper. And I was like, well, I, no, I don't, I don't want that. He said, but it's yours. <laughs> I said, I didn't order it. And he said, no, 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 everybody gets the newspaper here. And I said, "Really? What a country! This is amazing! You guys, I get the newspaper. I mean, and then I read it, and um, <laughs> I realized why it was free. <laughs> I a lot. Oh, but everywhere else i had been, you don't have to pay for the newspaper, but here you you get it. So I still have this weird tension when it comes to my my to my to my front door. Do I want this? Do I not want?" Want this. I was in a meeting here at the church. I remember uh, sitting there and there was a question that was asked by one of our pastors to, for discussion and all everyone was silent. And, you know, the American I me mean, was like, let's jump in there and get into the fray, right? But everybody else was super quiet for a while. And, and so finally, I, I said something and a couple of people said a few other things and they came to a conclusion. It was only like three people who talked. And I thought, oh, nobody must care about this. I remember walking out of the office and hearing just in every little office, little conversations being had about that question and how they thought about this and this thought about this. And I was like, so my Australian friend, Tim, was there and I asked, I said to him, what in the world is this? And he said, oh, mate. And he put his arm around, oh, mate, welcome to Canada, right? (laughs) Right, there's different rules, there's different cultural expectations and ways that you go about things that you're not used to, and that you know if you've ever lived anywhere different, there's this tension that you feel between what you were and what you are, and that's what Paul's describing here. Listen, you were of the flesh. That's the way you used to live, that was the former manner of your life, but now, in Christ, you are of the Spirit, and so there's a new manner of life, and there's this tension that's constantly at work inside of you. It's like you're a, a dog being called in two different directions. I say that. My sister and I used to compete for the affections of our dog, Patty, right? Put Patty in the middle, and I'd be on one side and Megan on the other, and I'd say, come, Patty, come, come, come. Patty never came to me. I always went to Megan because I didn't care about the dog. Um... <laughs> Until I, I got sick of losing in this little battle, and so I would quietly feed the dog behind Megan's back, right? And so I ended up winning all the time, right? All the time. But that's the image. That's the way it works. You're, you're like a dog stuck between two owners is calling your name, you know? Megan the flesh, Jeff the spirit, right? <laughs> come, come this way, come this way, and you know that feeling inside of you, yes. You say, I want a third way. There is no third way. That's what Paul says here, in fact. He says that uh, they're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. You don't get to do whatever you want. You either serve flesh or you serve spirit. So which is it going to be? I remember when I first came to faith in, you know, Christian, you know. You know what I'm talking about. You know that tension. You're tempted to do something and you... You fight against it. It sounds like the voice of the Spirit, and then sometimes you do want to do the good. You see other things calling out. When I first became a Christian, I, it was early in my high school years, and uh, I remember um, I had an anger issue before I came to faith in Christ. Um, so it was not com- uncommon for me to be in a dust up here or there. I remember being in a mall with some of my friends. Okay, came to faith in Christ just a few months before, and... Um, I was in a mall with some of my friends, uh, and we saw some other friends from our, our school, but they were like frenemies, right, the, the, other, the other group of guys who were competing for the interest of the girls, and they were walking by us, and we walked by, one of them. one of the guys, a guy named Tom, he looked at me, and he said, what are you looking at, you know? And you know, I'm not going to let that go. So I, <laughs> so I said, you know what I'm looking at. And I walked right up to him. And, you know, you get really close to his thing. I used to do this thing. You get really close to his face and you, (sighs) you know, just breathe. You get good and mad. He pushes me. And then he starts beaking at me. And, like, he was just beaking at me. And his shoulders were back and his chin was out there. Like, just sitting out there. And I was like, (laughs) right? But there was this before. Now, before I was a Christian, there's no, there's no temp. Like, you're getting hit. But what I, I felt myself go, oh, and the, inside of me, there was this like, no, don't do it. And I'd not experienced that before. I was like, wait a minute, what do you mean don't do it? But I want to do it. Don't do it. I want to do it. Don't do it. Oh, so I did it. I ended up punching him. In the face. <laughs> and then he got back up off the ground. I ran into a flower store. No joke, actually, I went into a flower store and I hid there until he, until he left. You know, that, you know that tension inside of you, though. That's what I'm talking about. That's what Paul's talking about. This, like, what you used to be and what you are now, and this, like, oh, do I. So, what happens if you choose the flow? What happens if you punch the guy? What happens if you choose the, 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 the dark dog? Well, verse 19, when you side with the flesh, the acts of the flesh, he says, are obvious. I don't need to tell you about them, guys. I mean, I'm going to make a list, Paul says, but like, they're, they're clear. The acts of the flesh are obvious. They're sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Just like the end of it, and the like. Ah, there's a whole bunch of other ones that I could have listed here, but I got tired. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he arranges this list in in kind of four categories of sin. Uh, One category is is, uh, sexual sins, another religious sins, uh, another relational sins, and then finally kind of has lack of self-control sins. So let's look at each one for a second. First of all, sexual sins. It is is interesting that he starts the list with the term sexual immorality, is it not? Like the sins sins of the flesh, the acts of the flesh are obvious. I mean, like sexual immorality. Everyone's like, oh yeah, yeah, we know that one. Because we do know that one. He uses the word here, the Greek word porneia. Does that sound familiar? Porneia. It's a catch-all term. It refers to all kinds of sexual misconduct, from adultery to homosexual acts to pedophilia to all sorts of whatever whatever you can think of. That's pornea. And he starts with it because he's basically saying, you know, mostly the flesh really wants to develop in you sexual misconduct. And isn't that the way our culture works these days? I mean... The age that's passing away is constantly yelling our voice to, to us, man, if you want to be happy, just do whatever you want sexually. I mean, as long as there's consent, but mostly just embrace yourself. And yet the call of the Spirit is so different, isn't it? Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That you're actually sexually broken and you need to submit yourself to the authority of God who has your best intentions at heart. No, that's not the case, says the flesh. Your best intentions are your intentions. Don't let everybody judge you. So sexual sins, religious sins, you notice he uses idolatry and and witchcraft. Now, you and I read stuff like idolatry and think, yeah, that sounds like something in animistic cultures, But an idol is anything we look to in order to provide for us the joy only God can provide. I'm going to say that again. So an idol is anything we look to to provide for us the joy that only God can provide. And so what what do we have when we have somebody coming and worshiping an idol? They bring their orange, and they're going to feed the idol, they, there's the idol there who represents their God and they come before him, and they lay the orange in a little basket before him and they, they bow down before the idol, maybe say a prayer. And what are they doing? They're eventually, they're, they're, they're saying, listen, idol, listen, oh great God, represented by the idol, I want to enter into a contract with you. I am going to give you things, expensive things, time, energy, worship, I'm going to give you all of this stuff, and in return, you are going to give me happiness. So it's a, what we call a quid pro quo arrangement with, with the idol, and you and I look at that and think, of course, that's, what, that's right, that's what, they, that's what they do, but we don't, we don't have idols. Really, we don't have anything we look to to provide for us the joy that only God can provide. So, so fill in the blank for me here. Uh, I will be truly happy if I have blank. I will be truly happy if I have money. I will be truly happy if I have successful children. I will be truly happy if I have hair. I w- I will be truly happy if I have a husband or a spouse, or I'll be truly happy if I have another different spouse. I'll be truly happy if I have eh, this thing. And we give all of our energy to that thing, that blank filling thing. We give everything we've got because we think that if we get it, we'll be truly happy. What do you call that? Call that idolatry. Sexual sins and religious sins and relational sins. Notice the sheer number of relational sins that he, he lists here. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. This is probably Paul's big concern with the Galatian church. He's essentially saying to them, look guys, the other stuff you probably struggle with, but this stuff especially is where the flesh shows up in your life. It shouldn't surprise you that, the, that Christian people struggle with enthroning their opinion and then forming factions and arguing with each other. Yes? So this week I was talking to a friend who uh, actually does uh, reconciliation meetings within churches. So he'll go into a church that's dying and he'll try to, they call it a solemn assembly when he gets together and they all come together and they share their feelings and forgiveness. They ask for forgiveness from each other. I said, can you give me a couple of examples, though, of some, some of the ways that people have enthroned their opinions on, in, in the church? And he said, oh, I've got a couple really good ones. So here's the first. He said, there's one church that I, was, I, I, I went to try to help out. They actually were dividing over a walnut tree. I said, what? <laughs> yeah, Look, so there's this walnut tree on the property, like 300-year-old walnut tree, that was threatening the structure of the, of the church itself, right? Look, so when the wind would blow, it would kind of look like it was going to come down. Some branches had come down recently, so it wasn't a healthy tree. They had the arborist have a look at it. So the leader said, look, we need to cut the tree down. But a few people in the congregation were like, no, you don't. My grandpappy professed his love to my grandmammy under that tree. There's like a heart and their initials on it. It's history. You want to ruin history? It's on God's property and environmentalism. Used anything they could to try to argue that this tree needed to stay. Leaders kept pushing it. They kept pushing back. They had several meetings about it until one deacon decided to take matters into his own hands. Hands and so under the dark of night. He went out there with his chainsaw. He cut the tree down, right? Which is, of course, the greatest sin ever. And so the half of church was freaking out and the other half was like, good for you, you know, and <laughs> blow up. Another example was a guy that, my friend, he said, yeah, I met him, he was, he was near the church that I was doing this reconciliation stuff with and I would just walk down the street and this guy was standing in the, his driveway and I said to him, oh, hi, how are you doing? And the guy said, good. Do you know anything about the church over here? Yeah, I know a lot of things about the chair. I used to go there. Oh, do you not go now? Now. Why not? Well, let me tell you why. Fifteen years ago or so, I bought a piano. And I told them I want that piano to go on the left side of the stage. And they said, no, it's better on the right. And I said, left. And they said, right. And then I wrote a letter saying, left. And they responded with a letter that said, Right. So I left, and I'm never going back. Really, over a piano? Now, I I tell you these ones because they're kind of goofy, but I got to tell you, I've been around the church long enough to know that this is like our favorite thing to do. Dissension. factions, Party spirit. That's exactly what Paul's describing here. What do you call that? And he says, well, that's acts of the flesh. Well, it's a big deal, acts of the flesh. So what? Christians, we show those acts of the flesh, big deal. What if we get entrenched in all those things? It's not that big of a deal. Really? Have you noticed the warning? Did you notice the warning? At the, at the end of verse 21, uh, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. In, in other words, I don't care how much you talk about how Christian you are, I don't care how much money you give to the church or how much you attend the church. If the acts of the flesh define your life, you're not what you claim to be. Now, i got to clarify that. I'm not, he's not saying, hey, listen, if you ever have any dissension with anybody ever, you're not a Christian. What he's saying, though, is he uses the word live there. Those who live like this, it's a present tense. Those who are living like this, that this is the manner of their life. This is the way we would describe them, what marks them. Is, if it's acts of the flesh, again, it doesn't matter what you say. The proof is in the pudding. Whenever I say this in, in this church or other churches, I'm always surprised how many people like go, mm, I don't think so. So I'm going to dogpile you with the Bible <laughs> when it comes to this to try to show you what, what I mean. That confession without action means false confession. Confession. So James, chapter 2, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith, the deedless kind, save them? Well, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical need, what, what good is it? What good is it for that person? I have the means to care for you. I see the need you have but I'm going to pray for you. What good is it for them? In the same way, verse 17, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. See, you believe that there is one God, verse 19, you believe there's one God, that's an orthodox statement of belief from the Old Testament. It's what the people of Israel repeated over and over again. So you're orthodox, you love your doctrinal statements, you believe there's one God, good, but even the demons believe that and shudder. So, in other words, if your, if your faith is profession only and is not matched by actions, you're basically as good as a demon. That's what James is saying. Because they don't submit to the authority of God in life, they just talk a good game. Ah, uh, similarly, 1 Corinthians 6. This is in the context of of Christians having lawsuits with each other. And Paul's incensed by it. He thinks it's ridiculous. You guys can't sort this out. You're gonna judge the angels one day, but you can't sort out fights between yourselves. Instead, you wrong each other. Listen to what he says in verse eight of 1 Corinthians 6. Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters, the people for whom Christ died. Or don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, right? Don't lie to yourself. Don't think that you're okay if you just have some profession and it's not matched by your action. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It Seems to me, quite honestly, that there's a lot of deceived Christians who think that by uttering a few words here and there, hey, it's all good, man. But Paul's warning you that if the acts of the flesh mark you, you're not what you claim. So what happens then if you choose the spirit? So that's bad news, right? The acts of the flesh and choosing the flesh. What, what happens when you choose the spirit? Well, there's also fruit that shows up, evidence of it that shows up. Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing, there, there is no law. So you're hiking down your forest path out there in the Okanagan, and you eventually come out to a clearing, and there are some trees over there, and you think, I wonder what kind of trees there are. And you walk over to them, and you notice that there are these round red things at the end, and you say, apple tree in the Okanagan, Crazy. You can tell the tree by its fruit. That's, that's Jesus. That's what he said. You can tell a tree by, by its fruit. You can tell that it's a flesh tree because it, sexual immorality and dissension and discord and, and you can tell if it's a spirit tree, a genuine Christian tree, you can tell if it displays what? Well, love. And by that, he means a, a kind of self-sacrificial giving of yourself for others regardless of the cost kind of love. That's what marks Christian people. Man, I was reading this week about, I like Christian history, and so I was reading this week about the, um, about the plague of Cyprian in 251 AD. The plague of Cyprian was one of the most dangerous plagues that took over the Roman Empire in the early days. Uh, the disease that people were catching was so contagious that you had a bit, pretty much a 50-50 chance if you came in contact with it. So half of the people came in contact with it died. And in these really crowded cities in the Roman Empire, what you did is you'd say, listen, I don't want to take the risk of of getting sick. And so if my my spouse or my children or my brother or sister have this disease, the first thing we do is we push them out the door. So that's the way you quarantine is you kick them out into the streets. Take all your stuff and get out. The aristocrats and the, the rich people and the government officials, they all took off into the country to their other houses, leaving behind all of their sick relatives to die. You know, what the, you know what the Christians did during this time? They would walk down the streets and they would collect the sick people and bring them to their houses. They died for it, many of them. Now, that's what Christians do. You know, when, when people shoot up your mosque in your city, the Christians show up to lend a hand. That's what Christians do. We're children of our Father in heaven who who makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust alike. That's what what Christians, we're marked by love and joy. You you know what I mean by joy? Not happiness, you know, not like a plastic smile on your face. I'm so joyful right now. Not, not that, so much as a settled state of mind, because we know that God, that God loves us. My mother in law is one of my favorite people in the world because no matter what happens in her life, she has a little statement that she gives when she can't manage it anymore. She'll sigh and say, with something heavy happening in her life, or she hears about something heavy, she'll go, The Lord is good. Right. The Lord is good. I've been in African churches before where they say that that's the way they start their church services. The Lord is good. And people respond all the time. And the others say all the time, the Lord is good. All the time. Even when you can't see it in front, of that's what joy is. It's a knowledge that even though I don't understand what's going on right now, God, I know that beyond this moment, there is a future that is eminently friendly. Love, joy, peace, a commitment to harmony with one another. I've gotten another other fights in my life. <laughs> when I was in college, I lived with a bunch of guys in a house, seven, seven guys. We called it Xanadu. And uh, so uh, in, this, in this house, uh, my friend Jeff, I was Jeff, and he was Jeff, and uh, he was sitting on the couch one day, and I was sitting on the floor, and we were talking about, I didn't even know what we were talking about, but I said something to make him mad, which is not surprising at all. I had my glasses on because I was studying, and uh, he was he was sitting on the couch, and he said, say it again, and I'm sure I said it again. And uh, he just, he just you know, Jimmy Superfly snuck off the top. That's an 80s wrestling reference there for you. So like he, off the top rope, Hulk hogan to me. And I remember saying to him out loud while he jumped on me, I was on the ground, uh, and I said, wait, 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 just let me take my glasses off, right? So I took my glasses off, and I put it over here. Okay, let's go. And so we were going forward on the ground, and um, one of our friends pulled him off of me, and I, he went up to his room, which was upstairs, (laughs) he said to me, and I responded, (laughs) you know, whatever. Went to my room, he was in his room, I was sitting there on my bed, angry at him, how dare he, but there was inside of me this like, you know, Jeff, peace should mark you. I just felt this, and I felt really burdened that I had done something here to to force him to do this to me. And so anyway, I reluctantly got up and kind of trudged myself out, walked over to the stairway, and he was coming down at the same time. And at the same time, we said to each other, Jeff, I'm sorry. (laughs) It occurred to me later, and then he said, you want to play video games? Yes, we did. But it occurred to me later, isn't that the way it works with Christians? Isn't I cannot guarantee you that you will not have a dust-up with your friends. I promise you, in fact, you probably will at some point or another. But what marks Christians is that we're we're not okay with acrimony. We're not okay with taking our ball and going home. We have to sort it out. We forgive as we've been forgiven. That's what marks us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Against these things there there is no law. So in other words, what is the spirit going to produce in your life those things? Such a difference, flesh and spirit, right? So here's the big question that you have to finish with here. How do you win it? How do you choose the spirit? Well, I want to take you back to verse 16 to answer that question. Notice what he says at the very beginning of this. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The Greek there is what we call oume. It's it's, it's the most negative form of, of, of a statement. Walk by the flesh and you will absolutely not, you will in no way gratify the desires of the flesh. So what's the secret to not gratifying the desires of the flesh? Walking by the Spirit. Well, what does that look like? You know, it's interesting. The Apostle Paul, everywhere he writes and he gives a command, if he gives a command for a thing, he always grounds that command in a statement of fact. He always grounds the imperative, what you should do, with an indicative, who you are. So you were once darkness, and now you're light in the Lord. Statement of who you are. Live as children of light. You you are in the Spirit. He is the governing authority over your life. That's what's true about you. So walk by the Spirit. So this, this is his secret to obeying God. He says you need to focus on the indicatives And then let them lead to the imperative. What do I mean by that? Okay, let's let's just real practically speaking. There there you are in the middle of your basement and the curtains are all drawn and it's late at night and you're struggling because you, you have a computer and you're thinking about looking at pornography in this one moment. You feel inside of you this tension between spirit and flesh calling you. You know you don't want to and yet it's so appealing and you're fighting back and forth. So what do you do? Well, you start by recognizing who you are with the indicative. Who am I? Well, I can give you some things. I'm free. The master called the flesh does not own you any longer. You've been delivered from his clutches. You don't need to answer that call. You in fact were bought with a price. You are a ma- you have a new master who calls you to honor him with your body because he purchased you. You're never alone. You think you're alone, but the Spirit is indwelling you. That's what's true about you, that everything you look at, the Spirit is seeing. And everything you do, the Spirit is witnessing. Those are all true statements about you. Those are the indicatives. What should you do then? Live in light of them. I am not somebody who needs to give in to this. I'm bought with a price, so I'm going to honor God with my body. And you make a phone call to a friend, and you go out public, and you just get out of there, man. Okay, what, what about uh, if I'm fighting self-loathing, which is something that most of us don't tell each other that we fight, but we all do. My bum's too big. My nose is too big. I don't have enough hair. Whatever it is, the thing that you look at and you think, oh, it's just horrible and I'm embarrassed about it and I gotta cover it up and fix it in order for everyone to like me. So and you accuse yourself. You remember all the times in your life that people have told you about that particular thing. So you've come, to believe if you're, uh, you've come to believe that you are defined by that. So what do you do? No, you start with the indicatives. What is true about you? Well, um, first of all, you're a child of the king. You're a daughter or son of the living God. And the way you got that way was God choosing you despite all of your failings, despite all of the things that he look, could look at and think, ooh, he picked you. And he's not really sad about picking you. He delights in it. And even though you're not perfect now, and you're not, he's taking real delight in forming Christ in you. He enjoys the victories, he cares deeply about everything you currently care about. He's taking joy in molding you. He's said that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. These are the indicatives, these are the true statements. So, what do you do? You tell those voices to shut up because they're not true. Shut up, flesh. What if, what if I worry all the time? Okay, well, we start with what's true. What's true? Well, you have a sovereign God who not only can control everything and does control everything, he has a particular interest in you. He loves you, he says, and he's going to work everything out according to the counsel of his will for your good and his glory. There's nothing in all creation that will separate you from the love of Christ. So no matter what it is that you're going to be facing, the thing you're worried about, God's going to work it out for your good. That's what's true. So what do you do? You give it over to God. You live in light of it. You say, listen, I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to take this on my back. I'm not equipped for it. You say, man, all of that sounds like, it sounds hard. It sounds like it's a fight. And I'm like, yes, it's a fight. But it's a winnable fight. So you, you can feed the right dog. Walk by the Spirit, and you will in no way gratify the desires of the flesh. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for your grace and for this passage and for it rounding off this series on the Holy Spirit. And Spirit, would you empower us to do what's described here? (laughs) We don't want to gratify the desires of the flesh, Father. We want our lives to be marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Would you make it so? Despite us, we pray, would you make it so?